11 more days, and Pinocchio comes out. This time it's a live-action version. It's a story, if you've ever seen the movie from 1940 or read the book from 1883, uh, it's a story of a puppet that has a desire to become an actual child, a little boy. There is the blue fairy who um, uh, is at work in Pinocchio's life and calls Pinocchio to be able to live a life that is brave and truthful and selfless. And I'm sure you've referenced it or you know of the reality for Pinocchio that if he told a fib or a lie, some kind of distortion, that his nose would grow. Can you imagine uh, if you were to do something wrong and some part of your, your body started to communicate to everybody of, uh, I'm bad, I'm guilty, I, I, I did that. In fact, let, let me ask, when was the last time you lied? When was the last time you lied? You know, lies can come in all shapes and sizes. Maybe even this morning someone asked you, how are you? And you didn't tell them the truth. And that's one of those times, are we allowed not to tell the truth if someone invades our space and asks us how we are, and we don't even want to be asked how we are anyways? I never wanted to share with, are we allowed to distort then? How about if last night your parents asked you, hey, did you do your chores? And you know you didn't really do them all the way to the specifications that the parents had outlined, but you nonetheless said, yes. Or maybe last April, uh, middle of the month, you sent some forms into the government, and there was just a little bit of stretching that took place in the deductions area. And you say, well, everybody does it. It's just part of the system. Plus, they're probably not going to investigate me. Or maybe at work, someone said, um, uh, when will you have that project done? Or when will you have that report on my desk? And you know you gave them a date that just isn't true at all. When did you last tell a lie? Was it a big whopper or a tiny fib? A broken promise or a crafted fabrication? Was it a tricky deception or a fact-stretching exaggeration? Was it a panic distortion or a compulsive alteration? All shapes and sizes. Of course, lying isn't the only sin that comes in different shapes and sizes. We could even take all the seven deadly sins. We could talk about greed or envy or gluttony or lust or anger or sloth or pride. And we could see that there are different ways of doing those. Can you imagine if every time you had a feeling of envy, your hair shrunk back into your scalp? Every time you were thinking evil thoughts of another person, your arm would go straight up in the air and reveal the truth. When it comes to understanding sin, uh, there are a number of places in the Bible we could turn to. In the little letter in the New Testament of 1 John, there's a couple of verses that stand out, at least for our conversation today. One comes from the third chapter, verse 4, where John describes sin as this way. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin, to sin against God, is going against God. Going against God's way. Going against what God has revealed about himself and about 
what life is to look like in this world, whether we do that in thought or word or action, whether it's a sin of omission or commission. It's the whole idea behind this series of sermons that we're currently in, this idea of an unwanted God, where we take issue with some aspect of God, rejecting who God is for some alternative. So we might take issue with God's wisdom. God, I happen to know, or at least I feel like I know a little bit more than you do about this particular situation, and so I'm going to set aside your wisdom and take my own. Or maybe we take issue with his transcendence, his bigness, and God, I just don't grasp it. I need something I can manage. I reject that about you. Or we, we take issue with his trustworthiness. Or, or this morning, we'll be looking at taking issue with God's holiness, his purity. There's this verse, again, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So sin is lawlessness. It's going against God. And then here in this verse 8, there is this teaching that, listen, if, if, if we claim to be without sin, if we claim to, to be the one who always goes the way with God, then the truth is not in us. So it turns out that we're a room full of people that struggle to always go the way that God would have us go. You're sitting next to a sinner. And the person sitting next to you happens to be sitting next to a sinner. So with this in mind, we can turn to our Bible passage. With this in mind, we can turn to our Bible passage because I think it opens us up to be able to receive the story. Thankfully, there's also good news, and we'll explore the good news along the way, but we can, re, uh, we can come close to this story when we realize that sin is going against God and, and that all of us struggle with sin. All right, so the story we're going to take a look at is about a husband and wife. And the husband and wife who sinned, who took issue with God's holiness, who, who said, God, we, um, we're not going to go that way. We're going to go our way. And they suffered some extreme consequences for it. If you have your Bible, let's go ahead and open up our, our Bibles to uh, our passage this morning. If you're uh, participating online, if, uh, take a moment, make sure you have your Bible as well. We'll put the words on the screen too. This comes from Acts chapter 42. Um, uh, through um, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 11. In fact, there's two parts to it. The first part is really the setup, at least for our conversation this morning. And then the second part will be the story of sin and consequences. Let's receive the Word of God. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, 
who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. May God bless the reading of his word. And may God bless us as we come under his word today. This is uh, in the first half of the passage we read, is actually the third time where Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, who wrote the book of Luke, and he's telling now the story of the early church. In the gospel, he told the story of Jesus is coming into this world and his ministry among the disciples, and, and now he's telling the story of the early church. And it's the third time that he, he gives reference to how well the church is doing and the kind of character and, and, and nature that they have with one another, one Christian to another. So in verse 14 of chapter 1, toward the end of chapter 2, and then here at the end of chapter 4, he gives these explanations. And by the way, as we gather this morning, I am thankful for the work of uh, Eckhard Schnabel and F.F. Bruce and John Stott. And and what we're talking about is built upon what um, others have uh, been able to study and reveal before One of the things that the scholars point out is that when you look at the end of chapter 2 and the way that Luke describes the early community there, and then the end of chapter 4 and the way he describes it there, there's actually three places where the same exact words are being used. So even just letting those three places describe the situation for us, it stands out that all things are in common, that the people had all things in common. That, that they were making choices, that it wasn't like, hey, this is mine and that's yours and I want to hold on to mine, you hold on to yours, but that they were committed together. Both passages at the end of chapter 2 and at the end of chapter 4 describes that goods were being sold, that those who had an opportunity to be able to sell something and to release the cash into the community that, that needs would be provided for did so. 
And then the third piece is, is just that, that as anyone had need. Can you picture that kind of community? People with uh, means were selling their means and, and making sure that others had what they needed. Our passage said that there was one heart and one soul uh, shared among the group, that they were united. If you were to read the whole book of Acts, if you were to read even just the portion of Acts t- uh, up to this point, you would see this is in response to the presence of the Holy Spirit. God pours His Spirit out on His children, and the response is to move toward each other. In fact, that is an insight. We can walk away from this passage even right now if we wanted to, that listening to the Spirit sends us toward each other. And we can see this in this story. We see this in the owners of lands and houses, that they were selling them, that they brought the proceeds, that they laid the proceeds at the feet of the disciples, and it was distributed to those in need. And then Luke gives an example. He points out Joseph. Joseph, and he gives some biographical data about him, but he calls him, he says, you know what the apostles called him? Barnabas. Son of encouragement, other translations might have, son of exhortation. And Barnabas, by the way, is an important character all the way through the book of Acts, through the story of the early church. When we look at the whole of this first half of our scripture, and if we were Kermit the Frog, we would raise our hands right now and go, it's just one of those pieces of passage pieces of scripture. There's a picture given in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 15, 4, where um, there's this promise that, that as the people come into the promised land, that there wouldn't be any poor. And here, as Luke writes the story that he's pointing out, look, this is the promise re, uh, coming true amongst us in response to the new covenant of, uh, of faith uh, in God through Jesus Christ and in salvation in Christ, that the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, look what we're doing regarding poverty. If you were a filmmaker, this is where you would cue in the sunshine. You'd pull the camera back and you'd see the whole picture. The score would come up. It would be in a major key. It would be wonderfully light and, and, and victorious. And... But we're about to make a turn. So if you are the filmmaker you might prepare the clouds to move in. You might take the score and turn it to a minor key and that the mood would become ominous. And so to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we find out that the early church wasn't perfect. It turns out that like Joseph and others, Ananias and Sapphira were wealthy, that they had... um, some land that they could sell. And they did sell their property. And both husband and wife were part of the decision. They, they were involved in it. They knew of it. They knew what was going on. And there's a reflexive use of a verb here. And, and, and we find that, that they held some back for themselves. But evidently, they didn't make this clear to others. That when they came and they, they brought their offering to the uh, disciples and laid it at their feet, 
that they allowed the perception to go on, that, that there was some kind of a communication that they were bringing all of the receipts. At least that's what we understand from reading the text. And so uh, um, two important conversations follow. And the first is with um, Ananias. Peter asks a series of questions. He asks him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? He goes on to ask him the rest of the questions. And, and what turns out is that Ananias dies right in that moment. The passage doesn't tell us that, that God um, took Ananias' life. There's not a statement overt like that, but we just know that there's this connection that Ananias and Sapphira, they, they um, distorted truth, they lied, they, they deceived, that it was, was against the Holy Spirit, not just others. Peter's elevating, look, look what you've done. Look at the decision you made and the, um, the truth of it. And he dies. The impact of that, immediate impact, was that there was great fear. Now, Sapphira's wife, we're told, three hours later, still hadn't heard the story. So evidently, the story went out, and, and, and people were responding with fear, but Sapphira hadn't heard. And she comes in, and Peter gives her an opportunity. He, he says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And there's this opportunity that Sapphira has, and she could have at that moment said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I need to let you know. We did not. But that's not her answer. She says yes for so much. And Peter's follow-up then is, how have you agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And then again, we're told that the people's response, even within the church, is great fear. You know, there are times, I think, when great fear is an appropriate response. One of them could be. If you ever happen to see alien spaceships show up in the sky firing on the planet, go ahead and be a little afraid. If you're going through your news feed or watching the news on television and they're giving a report that, that there's a salmonella outbreak at the restaurant you just ate at, go ahead and be a little afraid. If two people drop dead because their sin was prophetically revealed, that might be an opportunity where we go, what? Really? We can be afraid. You know, it could be any of us, at least based on the Scripture we've read, that um, we all are people who have sin. We're called to confess those sins before God. It could be any of us. So why them? You know, as I was working on this passage this past week, I, I, I looked at a whole bunch of different comparisons just of how different scholars responded to that question. Why them? Why did it happen to uh, Ananias and Sapphira? And they all come to similar conclusions, and it's kind of really neat, and they're all theological, and they, they list them up, and it seems like that's the easy question to answer. 
listen, Satan is at work, and, and they lied, and it was a lie not just to each other or to the community, but, but it's a lie that's in front of God, and it's a lie to the Holy Spirit, and, and that's just the consequences of sin. That seems to be the easy part to answer. The hard part is, why not me? Why not others in the community? Why not someone else who made a choice? Because no one in that church was perfect. We even know the story of Peter, that when Peter denied Jesus three times, even after being told that he was going to deny Jesus three times, and yet for Peter there was restoration. Why not the rest of us? We might ask, were they Christian? Scholars play around with that question. Uh, Some scholars come to the point where they look at the way that Luke introduces the text, where where Luke introduces Ananias and he says, a man. And and whenever he introduces others in the book of Acts with that term, a man, Ananias, that, um, that it's somebody outside the faith. So that would be evidence maybe they weren't Christian. And yet other scholars come to the conclusion that, yes, they were Christian because if you look at it, people inside the church were afraid as well. And that they sold a property and that they actually brought the money to the apostles' feet and and that there's this connection by being a part of that community. We might ask, do they go to heaven? We don't know the answer to that. The Bible doesn't provide an answer for something like that. Why weren't they given a chance to repent? Or or were they given one and they just don't tell us in the story? What the story does do, what the story does answer, is that God's holiness is not to be taken lightly. That decisions to go against the way of God, to go against God's character, to go against what God has taught and revealed, that that has consequences to it. We might come to the end of this passage and just simply say, there but for the grace of God go I. So I was thinking about, well, how as a people, are we only to then end up at the end of this passage with fear? Is that all we're to do is to go, wow, and simply go home dumbfounded that this happened to two people in the midst of the church, the early church. And so in the remainder of our time, what I would like us to do, instead of just leaving with fear, is let's spend a little time of what would be our response what if, if, we, if we're Ananias and Sapphira, what, what if we chose a different way? Would there be a walk, a way of living this life that would set us up for a different kind of conversation if Peter were to ask us questions? And so here's the answer to that, choosing a different path. Rye, F-er-er-I. Rye, F-er-er-I. I want you to say it with me, okay? Here we go. Rye, F er er i all right so this is your next tattoo all right forearm you can reference it quite nicely you can make a nice sleeve if you do some drawings around it here's a different path we can choose the first r remember god you know we talk about in church doing daily devotionals or attending a bible study or going to a life group 
we don't just do that to keep people busy or to, to compare ourselves to other churches. Oh, we've got so many small groups. Or we do it because there's something wonderful about remembering God, about remembering who God is, that God would fill our thoughts and, and to remember that God has shown himself to be good and loving and, and uh, the one who provides who's also holy and transcendent and trustworthy and, and to remember who God is. You know, we might say, do I want to follow a God whose judgment for lying results in death? Do I want to follow a God who seems to be over this situation where a husband and wife died simply because they, they didn't tell the whole truth about their contribution? It's a a good question. But when you look at the whole story of God, that God is fully and absolutely loving and fully and absolutely holy, and we live together with the blessing of both of those things. So if we want a different response, I, I think that a really good place to start is remember God. This, the why then is for yearn for intimacy yearn for intimacy. It's not just about remembering God, but what about going deeper with God? Consider right now, where are you with God? How close do you feel to, uh, to God? Now, picture six months from now, how could that change to be richer? For instance, like how often does God fill your thoughts during the day? When you spend money, is God present in the midst of your spending of money? When you have words that you share with another human being, when you think about your neighbor, when you're at work and you're thinking about all your colleagues, how much does God fill that time in your thoughts, in your choices? What if we could yearn for an intimacy with God that would make God just so much more a fabric, part of the fabric of every day for us? I have a, an accountability group um, that I connect with once a month. And uh, uh, this past month, there were four of us on the Zoom call. And one, one of them uh, was sharing some words just of encouragement to the rest of us as we were just sharing part of our lives and what we struggle with. And, and the person shared, let God woo you. Ask God to woo you. We have a God who woos his children who shares that love, who wants to build a loving relationship. Our choice is to long for, to yearn for intimacy. So the E, examine yourself. It's an old practice for centuries. People have been doing this. It's that checking in each day, how, we've, how we're doing, catching ourselves. Can you imagine if Ananias and Sapphira after they had made their choice, and they, they, they pause somewhere in the day and go, hey, let's think about it. How are we doing? How are we doing with God? How are we doing with the choices we're making? What if we took time to examine ourselves? You know, in this culture, we, in our country, we talk a lot about diabetes and just how many people suffer with diabetes. We know even in our own congregations, there's a lot of folks. And people who have diabetes, they need to be, pay attention to numbers. They need to pay attention to their health, their exercise, their, their intake of food. They need to examine themselves because if they don't, and if diabetes goes its full course, that there can be damage internally. 
And for us, in a similar way with sin, that we would examine ourselves. We check our numbers. We we'd pay attention because we don't want just damage internally, but we don't want damage communally. And we get to the F. Flee temptation. Flee the evil one. I, I love that in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, um, uh, God, Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is a great prayer. God, would you keep us clear? W- would you make sure that in your working out of our life, would you not lead us into temptation? Would you deliver us from evil? Well, we can join and be a part of the, our own answer to that prayer, that we would flee because it's really hard to say, God, would you keep me from these things and then just choose to walk straight into them so we can flee temptation. We can flee the evil one. The R, second R is for repent. So when, when we do know, when we have examined, when we failed to have fled, we can come to that point and we can say, uh-oh, I, and I need to change the course Repent has at least two parts to it that we would confess and then we would commit. We'd say, God, I I am sorry. I realize I've done this. I've hurt so-and-so. Or going to a person, I've hurt so-and-so. I've hurt you. And we repent and we commit ourselves to a more faithful way. The third R, receive forgiveness. Receive forgiveness. It's so important to be able to do I love the story in the Gospels where Peter comes to Jesus and goes, how many times should I repent? Uh, seven? And he thinks he's kind of given a good answer. You know, yeah, whoa, seven. <laughs> uh, that's a lot, isn't it? And Jesus, no, it's 70 times seven. It's a lot more. Just keep forgiving. If our Lord tells his followers to do that, we can trust that our God does the same. Would you receive the forgiveness that God has for you. And finally, I, that we would invite accountability. We would invite accountability. I found it to be helpful to, when we think about accountability, to think of two things, appropriateness and effectiveness. So to reach out to someone or to be a part of a group that you can come and go, listen, can you help me walk well with Jesus? I can share my life with you. And, and you can share your life with me and we can encourage one another in the faith and, and if we have issues and we're struggling and you, we can be people who speak into each other's lives. Finding someone who can do that well with you. Someone you can build that trust with. And I've seen it time and time again where people enter into a, an accountability relationship uh, only to, uh, uh, without sharing any words about it, agree we won't talk about these seven things. <laughs> Here's what we can hold each other accountable to. We won't say these words, but we'll hold each other accountable to things that, that don't pinch too much. And so we kind of carve out these other things. Don't bring up uh, money. Don't bring up, uh, you know, greed, envy. Yeah, don't bring up greed, envy, lust, uh, slothfulness, uh, anger, or pride, and then we're good. And so if you've gotten into a place in an accountability relationship where it's no longer effective, reach out to someone else. Find those connections that where you can help one another uh, walk well with God. Today we've been talking about taking issue with God's holiness. 
and that it matters. It impacts. It impacts us individually. It offends God. It breaks community. When we take issue with God's holiness, it's the same thing as we could describe it as just being casual about sin. And maybe for us it's lying or lusting or envying or stirring up strife or dishonoring parents. And so we have a choice. On the one hand, we can continue to take issue with God's holiness and what he's revealed. Or we can come and seek his forgiveness. We can welcome his forgiveness into our lives and be cleansed by him. There's another little verse in in 1 John. It's good news. It says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we admit that the story of Ananias and Sapphira is a heavy story. It's not the only one like it in the Bible either, and and these stories weigh upon us. God, would you so work in our lives that we wouldn't harbor sin? That, God, you would so move in our lives that you would make us uncomfortable. That you would convict us that, that we would be disturbed about choices we're making or things we're not doing that, that really don't align with who you are. God, would you, would you work in us that, that there would be a, a, a faithfulness that that only comes about because of your hand moving in our lives. And would you find us as as children that are willing recipients of that kind of grace, would you work your great power and your great grace in our midst that you would be glorified all day long, all night long in our lives. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ in whom we do have salvation, in whom we have received forgiveness, in whom we have been justified before you. And we honor you even today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.